Welcome to The Power of Data, the podcast by Dun & Bradstreet. Data is everywhere, and there is more created every second of every day. Join us to hear from leaders unlocking the value of data. Hi, welcome back. You're joined today by me, Sam, and Bob Wigley, Chairman of UK Finance. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Bob, in doing my research ahead of having the pleasure of meeting you today, it took me a lot longer than I thought it would. You've got a really <laughs> extensive past, and it touches on everything from financial services to regulation, government roles, academia, broader business, philanthropy and charity. An incredible past already and, and still so much further to go. But could you tell our listeners a little bit about your career? Well, the story I'd love to start with was when at school I participated in something called Young Enterprise. It's a scheme where you actually operate a little business for two hours a week. And so I was the managing director of that little business and we made uh, notelets and lamp shades. We doubled the £250 that we raised from our parents, uh, turned it into £500 over the course of the exercise. But it taught me a lot about being an entrepreneur and running a little business. And the great bit of that story is that when I then went to university, I mentored some kids in a young enterprise company. I had won the national competition. I was managing director of the nationwide award-winning competition, and they won also the national competition. We were in the car on the way back to London from Sheffield, which was where Midland Bank used to be headquartered. Mm -hmm. And they said to me, Bob, how many schools are there in the UK? And I said, I think it's thousands. And they said, and how many young enterprise companies are there in the UK? And I said, I think it's about 200. And they said, well, since you've had this amazing experience and we've had this amazing experience, how do we get one in every school in the UK? So I said, well, let's write to the Prime Minister. And I was 19, they were 16. So they looked at me and they said, you know, can we write to the Prime Minister? I said, anybody can write to the Prime Minister. So we wrote to Mrs. Thatcher. Slightly to my surprise, by return, I got an invitation to go and meet her at Downing Street the following week. And so the four of us trekked off to Downing Street. We made her a little presentation about why we thought Young Enterprise was something that should be a national scheme. She had convened in the room next door in advance the chairman of Lloyd's Market, the chairman of the Stock Exchange, the chairman of some banks, she took us next door. She basically said to these pale, male and stale, we would now call them men, you lot, make sure there's one of these schemes in every school in the UK by the end of next year. And then she left. Wow. Now, it was meeting the chairman of one of the banks who then said, listen, you're obviously trouble. You better come and see me at my office. And I went to his office. I remember thinking, the chairman of a bank, this is what I'm going to do for a living. And it took me 25 years, but that is ultimately what I did. But it was all from that inspirational meeting with Mrs. Thatcher. That's an incredible story. It really is. From lampshades to boardrooms. Unbelievable. So inevitably, then I got caught by the educational system, did the usual thing, went to university. I qualified as chartered accountant. Did a couple of years in the consulting business, and then I ended up moving into banking, where I spent a very happy 25 years, first uh, 10 years with Morgan Grenfell, and then 16 with Merrill Lynch. And yeah. I ended up being the, the EMEA chairman of Merrill Lynch, so that was 9,000 people, 23 countries, about half a trillion dollars of gross assets. And that takes us into the financial crisis, when I was asked by the Prime Minister to join the board of the Bank of England to help the bank at that time begin to understand what was probably going to come down the pike in terms of the effects of the financial crisis and how best to handle them. And then 10 years ago, I left banking and I now have one job, which is this fantastic job chairing UK finance, mm -hmm. where I represent the UK financial services industry, banking and finance. And the rest of the week, which is actually most of it, I back young entrepreneurs building growth businesses. Two questions here that I want to segue into. The first though is on UK finance, the trade organization. I've had the great pleasure of being part of the founding teams of a couple of different trade bodies, and they often have very broad and varied objectives. UK finance is the kind of all-encompassing one. 
Your board includes representatives from all different areas of the industry, including the other trade organizations, which is super powerful because it means that you act as the sort of cross-pollinating um, convening capability. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about UK Finance and, and what your purpose is? Yes. So we have 250 members and they range literally from the biggest five banks and building society in the UK mm-hmm down to the smallest asset-backed lender. And in the middle, they have uh, the payment schemes, they have uh, the credit card companies and the building societies. So we literally cover the waterfront. We don't look after insurance, which of course is the ABI, or asset management, which is the investment association, but pretty much everything else. Now, the good news is you might think with the variety of members we have going from HSBC to, say, Monzo, that we would find it difficult to represent the industry because Mm. people have very different views. In fact, Many of the things that we work on, and we have three basic functions. The first is policy formulation for the industry. So what regulation do we see coming down the pike, either from the EU or from our own government? And how should we react to it? How should we help shape it? Then we have advocacy. So that's advocating with government regulators and the media. And then the third one, which I spend most of my time on, is what we call collaboration. So that's how can the industry work better together? to do things that maybe historically banks have done on their own individually, but now could be doing better together, which improves service to our customers and help us save money. So that's a big area for us. And the biggest of those, and I know we're going to come back to it later, is fighting economic crime. Yeah, we certainly are. That's a really hot topic for me, for Dun & Bradstreet, and for you guys. But let's go back to the start of that question. We were talking a little bit about how you spend some of the rest of your time, which doesn't sound like you have much of it, but investing in exciting new areas. I have a personal passion in investing as well, and I'm particularly keen not to steal your thesis, but to hear why you like financial technology and cyber so much. So, first of all, I like hanging out with entrepreneurs because, like you, I guess, I find them invigorating. Better than bankers. Definitely. I don't know if I can than, say better that. Better than some bankers. So, <laughs> so, having spent 25 years in mainstream big corporates, I mean, listen, you can, you can have a great time there. You can have a fascinating and fulfilling career. But spending some time, at least, with younger entrepreneurs who have great ideas, but perhaps don't always know how to get those ideas put into action, where you can bring some experience, you can bring some contacts, mm-hmm. maybe you can bring some money. And sit alongside them and help them grow, both financially and as people. That's a great privilege. And so that's why I do it. And your day job at UK Finance, you're helping big firms collaborate with small firms. And it's ultimately exactly the same thing. When you're helping an entrepreneur build a value creation plan, your experience of dealing with large banks and understanding how to manage the stakeholders, understanding sales cycles, understanding value propositions must be critical for them. It's been a particular, I think, issue for fintechs because by definition, you know, these are startups, they're small businesses. They're seeking to provide services very often to very large corporations that have safety and soundness at their heart. So being taken seriously in a first meeting when you are a very small business with a huge corporation that is by nature conservative is difficult. And that, I think, is where I can be helpful because I can often open that door, get the conversation going enable the startup to be taken seriously and given credibility in a way that maybe it couldn't if it was just on its own. Collaboration, actually, I think is one of those big trends we've seen over the last 10 or so years. And you know, the financial crisis, for all of the, the awful things that it brought, did bring uh, an inflection point where people had to think differently. Collaboration was one of the positive things that came out of it. What are some of the other trends that you've seen in our space that kind of align to the fourth industrial revolution? Well, obviously, the increased shift to digital. So customers are looking for more convenient and frictionless ways of accessing their cash, their savings, their investments. So a large part of the fintech community is obviously focused on helping that shift to digital happen faster. And obviously, 
bigger banks with uh, legacy systems and millions of customers, certainly at the beginning, maybe have not been so fast to embrace the digital revolution. Some of these fintechs have been a great spur to innovation. Mm. But I think we have seen a shift. So whereas at the beginning, some of the big banks perhaps looked at these fintech companies warily, weren't sure whether they were really competitors or whether they were good or bad. I think now we've moved into a period of collaboration where where bigger banks see the the shift in the interests of their consumers, their top priority is to serve consumers better. And if they can do that by integrating a fintech company that has already developed some interesting new software or processes that helps them serve their customers better, that is absolutely part of the mission. Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen banks since uh, I joined a bank right in the crux of the financial crisis, which was a terrible time to join. Mm. And we saw a, a shift in focus, which was a shift towards the customer as the customer became more empowered. We've then seen a shift to corporate banking and specifically to banking SMEs. And I was reading in the Financial Times this morning, actually, this shift towards the freelancer micro SME community, which again is is a large focus now for Dun & Bradstreet. In the US, nearly a third of all jobs are gig economy jobs, Mm. which I think is going to be a fascinating next chapter for the industry. I totally agree. So I'm actually writing a little book, which is going to be called That Bloody Device, which is about the smartphone and the effect on Generation Z and the behaviors that we're seeing in that age group. And I myself meet a new entrepreneur every day. I made a New Year's resolution about two years ago to do that. And the kids I meet, you know, they all want to start their own business. They all want to work at home or work in in a WeWork. They're not interested in it's what I call experiences, not jobs. Yes. And purposes, not businesses. They're actually two in my chapter heading. So, you know, people want to work for an organization they feel is doing something useful and sustainable rather than simply a large company that makes money. So I think that's, you know, the whole CSR thing has now moved into a different gear and we talk about sustainability right across, but certainly in banking. Uh, we talk about purpose. We need mm-hmm. to explain better to people because the, the basic function of banking, which you know, you and I would understand as maturity transformation is never going to score highly on social media or be a, a top attractor. But that's actually what banks do. Now, explaining that we help small businesses grow, we give families their first mortgage, or we help them buy their first car, using what I call Janet and John English to put into everyday language what banks do that actually give the economy the ability to function in its most basic sense. That's what banks do. But we just have to be better at explaining what we call purpose. And I love the title of your book, by the way. I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos just this year, and I was speaking to an executive from a bank. We were talking about the anxiety that phones create for the next generation, a generation who's only ever known always being on. And the lady asked me, how many different ways do you think there are on your phone for someone to communicate with you? And immediately I started thinking a text, call, voicemail that only my mother uses, and a few other ones. I made an average guess at, say, 12 to 15. There were over 30 on my phone alone. I got tired of counting. There's a professor at MIT called uh, Professor Sherry Turkle who's written two fantastic books about the early effects of this kind of technology on Generation Z in particular. The first book was called Alone Together. So the concept that you might theoretically be connected to lots of people, but in fact you are lonely. And I literally in the car this morning on the way here was listening to the to women's hour and there, there was half an hour section on loneliness and precisely this subject that you know you can have a hundred connections but you don't actually have a deep relationship with anybody. So I think that's a big problem. And she goes on in her second book, which is called Reclaiming Conversation, to look at the way in which these devices facilitate uh, text conversation, but basically have ended the role of this live conversation. 
And if you don't sit with someone, you don't see the facial signals they're sending you mm. in reaction to what you say, um, you lose the ability to empathize. And empathy is what holds society together. So I think what my book, I hope, will do is go on to ask if you buy that general construct of behavior, which I don't think you can't because it's sort of pretty obvious, particularly with youngsters, is what does that mean for the future of the family? What does it mean for the future of the workplace? Do we actually have to meet the workplaces in the future or do we have style places where people come and sit, but actually the two people they don't talk to are the people in the pods next to them because they've got their earphones on and are, you know, devoured by three devices on the desk. Um, and ultimately, what is the effect on community? Is the only community we have virtual community through through our smartphone, which we all know is is fake. It's so true. And I could talk about this for hours. I was reading a book last night and, and I read two pages and then I started thinking about other stuff. And I realized that my concentration span is now... I'm hoping the chapters in your book are 160 characters per chapter because uh, then I'll be able to read it. So we've lost the ability to do what's called deep attention. We have become multitaskers, but the problem with that is we can't actually attend to any one thing solely for any length of time. That's a problem because it is when you're in deep attention that you tend to actually make achievement. And the other thing we've lost the ability to do is deep read. So we now skim read paragraph. I mean, kids, the idea of kids reading books is actually quite troublesome. Yeah. And what they'll do is be perhaps watching a Netflix, part reading, you know, the first line of a chapter of a book, answering three Facebook messages, there's a Snapchat thing popping up on the right-hand side of your screen here. So you're actually looking at six things at once. So you've lost the ability to attend to one thing deeply and to read anything for more than a few seconds because the next stimulus comes with the next stimulus. This then leads, interestingly, to, to I think, to all sorts of uh, issues around mental health because the dopamine effect of this device is to encourage you to constantly seek the next stimulation. And that, well, that is quite troublesome. And that's where you're getting this, what we call disconnection anxiety. Anyway, so that's the book. We'll see, see if we can actually get it done. It's quite, a, quite an undertaking, but I'm working with a, a young uh, researcher from Yale called Lulu Chang, who I've worked on a paper with before. So we're making progress. Well, I feel like we've just had an appointment in the first 10 minutes of our podcast. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Let's flip to economic crime, mm. a bit more of a sobering topic. Mm. I read a while back, actually, I think it was the start of 2019, the government put out seven priorities around how to tackle economic crime. Economic crime still accounts for something around the seven billion pound mark in the UK and unbelievably large number globally. I would love to hear your reflection perhaps on the last 12 months that, that have just been and gone. How are we improving our approach to economic crime in the UK? Yeah, so the short answer is you know a massive improvement, but lots more to do, of course. And let's just quickly try and divide economic crime up into sort of areas. So I guess there are two really big ones. One is money laundering. We think there's about 100 billion sterling of dirty money floating around the UK per annum. Okay, now we have, to try and tackle that, we have uh, anti-money laundering legislation. But right now, the scheme is not as effective as we would like. And UK Finance, therefore, has a group of people from the Home Office in our office working on a joint project to try and reform the way anti-money laundering procedures in the UK work with a view to there being less but more meaningful triggered reports to the National Crime Agency. At the moment, there are way too many reports for the National Crime Agency to be able to deal effectively and investigate all of them. So what we need to do is reduce the number, but make them more effective, sorry, more meaningful, mm. i.e. more likely to lead to some, some law enforcement activity and ultimately a prosecution. So that's, that's one part of it. The other part of it is, is fraud in the widest sense. This is now, I think, pretty much the largest crime statistic in the UK. So more people fall victim to fraud than fall victim to any other crime in the UK. Wow. And the banks obviously spend billions trying to prevent fraud, 
and we reckon that we prevent, and I think independent estimates show that we, we prevent about two in three pounds of every attempted fraud. But if one pound in three is still getting through, that's one pound too many. And so there we have a whole range of public partnerships with the government, with the Home Office, with law enforcement to try and become more focused on the biggest areas and the biggest threats. So last year, as an industry, we worked very closely with the Home Office to prepare the first ever public-private threat assessment. So this takes all the information that our intelligence agencies know, that our law enforcement and national crime agency knows, and, and put it together with what the financial intelligence officers of banks and building societies and credit card companies know to better frame the threat, if you like, where are the most serious issues. And then from that, we put together the first ever joint economic crime plan. So that's saying, okay, well, if you say those are the biggest five threats, how can we work together between law enforcement, the government, the agencies, and the industry to tackle that fraud most effectively? And there we have a whole range of initiatives, but they include things like our dedicated card fraud prevention unit, which again, we house at UK Finance. We have a group of police who liaise very closely with the financial intelligence officers of banks. And every day we go and raid organized consumer credit card gangs we take their computers and their phones, we recover lost cards, we recover a lot more lost card numbers. On occasion, we recover proceeds and repatriate them to, to their rightful owner. And that's been a very effective model, again, bringing together the best of the public and private sectors. I was flicking through the agenda and itinerary for the event, the Economic Crime Summit that you're hosting uh, this Wednesday on the 12th of February. And there's a panel that has a representative from HSBC, a representative from the National Economic Crime Centre and a representative from the police force. And I did yes. wonder how those people fitted together. Yes. So there is now something called the Economic Crime Strategy Board. It was set up under the last Home Secretary. We've met three times. And that brings together Everybody from the Attorney General, the Director of the Serious Fraud Office, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, the Commissioner of the City of London Police who lead on fraud in the UK, the Director General of the National Crime Agency, myself representing the industry broadly, and then the CEOs of some of the largest banks in the UK. And what we do is we, we look at these reports, we look at the threat assessment, we look at the, the economic crime plan, and we make sure that resource is brought to bear on the biggest threats and we really start to drill down on some of this activity because although some of the items are quite small in monetary terms, they have the potential to ruin families' lives. And everyone that gets through is one too many. So we're working very, very hard on that. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, it seems. And I don't mean to make it sound trivial. I just think that technology gives us such an opportunity. At DMB, we do a ton of stuff in the economic crime space. We focus on work around supply chain with UK government. We do an awful lot of stuff with our bank clients and other firms that have global supply chains to eliminate this kind of activity. In fact, just in this seat before you, uh, a chap called Vishal, who's the CEO and founder of Quantexa, which is a financial crime analytics business, uses our data to enrich their proposition so that they can help banks cut down on fraud. This is absolutely an area where AI can be brought to bear to focus the activity in the most likely place to result in a good outcome. And we work with firms like yours across the industry and others. And just this week, I've been in a series of meetings where we're looking at the patterns of activity across bank account activity in the UK or bank-to-bank -bank transfers, to be more precise. Mm. And we're trying to hone down on the issue of Mueller accounts. So there are thousands of Mueller accounts in the UK that are used by criminals to transfer money once the money has been obtained under a fraud, to transfer it, divide it up into smaller amounts before it perhaps goes 
abroad or goes out through some other aspect of the financial system, maybe into cryptocurrency or into cash through an ATM or, mm. or a money service bureau, for example. Now, the pattern of activity in those Mueller accounts is very different from the one that we would see in your bank account. In your bank account, I think we probably see a large check come in once a month, which would be your salary, and then you'd have a whole series of payments that would go out over the rest of the month. It's a pretty stable pattern of activity yeah. most of the time. Okay, A Mueller account will do nothing for weeks, and then suddenly some money will arrive, and within minutes, possibly even seconds, it will be divided into small chunks and sent out. So that kind of activity, you know, one can detect using AI, and then one can hone down on those accounts and investigate what's going on. Another really interesting area actually is human trafficking. We put together with Dow Jones, Dun & Bradstreet, and then uh, some NGOs and Quantex, uh, the ability to find people who are participating in the human trafficking activities. 40 million people a year are still being trafficked. It's just not acceptable in the world we live in. No, it absolutely isn't. Actually, the Dutch, I think, have the best program on this. Uh, some of the One of the Dutch banks in particular work closely with the law enforcement agencies in Holland. I was there two or three months ago looking at what they're doing, and we will look to see if we can import some of the learning from that program here, but that's certainly the world-leading program that I've seen in, in that particular area, which, as you say, is terrible. I want to hear more about that, but maybe offline. I don't know how much you're able to say. Let's pivot a little bit, perhaps, to some external industries outside of financial services. The use of availability of, of data in industries in general is, is evolving at lightning pace. What role do you think we can use data analytics in other industries? So take one of my own businesses that I'm backing, a business called Bink which basically links your loyalty cards to your payment card. Now, that business will ultimately deliver very useful data to retailers. Mm -hmm. Actually, they used to have it, but the advent of contactless payment and self-service checkouts has resulted in retailers losing a lot of their customer data. So we're restoring that. So useful data, which means that when the retailer sends you an offer, they're sending you an offer for something you actually regularly buy as opposed to something you rarely buy which can happen at the moment. So it's improving the quality of loyalty schemes for retailers. So that would be one example that I would highlight. That's in one of my own businesses. Another, I'm involved in a a second business in Northern Ireland, which uh, basically is a new way of making online video content, but it contextualizes what you see. So that let's say we both watch an Instagram video. There might be a 10 second clip in the video that you watch that has Hugo Boss suits as its focus. In my case, it might be Massimo Duty, and that's because Instagram knows from the other things we're doing on Instagram what we like to look at. So our technology personalizes the content of video to your personal buying habits, making hopefully the content of that video more relevant to your interests. So that's another use of data. It's amazing. We're about to launch a new capability at DMB that combines your own in-house data with traditional data, you know, typical financial data that we would provide with alternate data. And alternate data provides so many incredible opportunities. If you think about sentiment and intent data, if you think about digital data and all of the exhaust data that's kicked up by payments transactions, if you can structure and apply analytics to those, you can allow businesses to to make so many better decisions. And we're just getting, I think, to that sort of hockey stick curve part of global commerce where things are about to move a lot faster and be a lot more meaningful. I completely agree with you. But I think that the other thing that's happening in parallel is a focus by the consumer on the fact that it is their data that is being used and what it's being used for. So I think in parallel with that rise in development, you will see the growth of the sort of data ethics process and companies adopting their own data ethics processes and policies 
and the consumer better understanding when their data has been used and what it's being used for. And so certainly banks are leading the way in that area. We're going to go towards a Brexit-related question. I'm sure you've fielded tons of these. So let, we'll, uh, we'll keep it just to just well, the one. Just as a quick interject, the best job, you haven't asked me this question, what was the best job I've ever had? It was being chairman of Victoria Beckham's fashion business. And the reason that was the best job I ever had was for 18 months I went to dinner parties and no one ever asked me about Brexit. They just asked me about Victoria. So that was the best job ever. I now want to change my question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You've advised so many businesses in your career, from the Royal Mail to British Airways to a, a ton of entrepreneurs coming through the ranks as the future unicorns, or so we hope. Without getting too much into the politics, what are some of the biggest issues that people were concerned about with Brexit? Have they been alleviated? And what do you think is still on the horizon for us? So I think just to touch on financial services to start with, obviously, the loss of passporting is not something that anybody can dress up as a positive. You know, if today you can, by having a bank in the UK, sell your products in 27 markets and tomorrow you can't, that's a problem. So the question is, where do we go from here? Do we end up with some kind of mutual equivalence framework? And that's certainly our fervent desire. We never thought we would get as far as mutual recognition, but we do think some kind of enhanced mutual equivalence framework is where we hope to end up. The truth is, and we have to be realistic about this, that free trade agreements in history have not tended to cover services, let alone financial services. Now, this government is talking about a Canadian-style agreement that does as you know, have a chapter in it on financial services. So we'll just have to see where we end up. But we're very much hoping that we can head towards some kind of mutual equivalence process where we are still able to sell our products abroad, unless the government and the industry has decided to diverge from the EU rulebook, and that threatens equivalence. But that at least should be a decision that's taken in the knowledge of its impact, not by accident. So we hope from the start to have equivalence. As far as other industries, I mean, there are, there are similar issues in other industries, whether it be, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, whether it be car manufacturing, where, you know, the regulations today give them access. And if they didn't have equivalents tomorrow, they might not have that access. So I think the issues are kind of similar, but different, obviously, in every industry. Mm. As far as I'm concerned, I'm very positive about the future, very positive about the future of the UK. I have never seen innovation at a higher level. And I, I meet a new entrepreneur every day. I meet many young, growing businesses And every day I'm seeing fantastic ideas and energetic entrepreneurial people. And I'm very confident that with the kinds of free trade agreements that I know many other countries in the world want to do with us. And so just before Christmas, I had a series of dinners with bank senior executives from the relevant countries and the ambassadors of Japan, Canada and Australia, all of whom said two things, which slightly surprised me, to be honest, in in terms of their degree of enthusiasm. The first was we want now to see you out of the EU. We want this process finished and we want certainty because the day you leave, we want to sign a free trade agreement with you and we want it to be wide ranging. They all said this pretty Mm. much. We want it to be wide ranging. We want it to be meaningful and we want it to be groundbreaking. And so, okay, you can add up Australia, Canada and Japan and say that they don't add up to a massive amount of our total global trade, but they're all very important countries and they all have completely different trading issues with us. And they're all broadly saying the same thing, which is we'd like to see the UK banging the drum for free trade in the world, not for protectionist approaches. This has always been our stance. And of course, we're going into these talks on the basis that we want to start with zero tariffs. Uh, Why do trade agreements take so long to negotiate? Largely because, you know, you say to me, well, if you want 5% on cars, I'm going to put 3% on fish. If you start from the point of view, you don't want to charge anything on anything you would at least hope, maybe I'm naive, that the conversation could be a lot quicker. And then you, then you quickly move to the, the non-tariff barriers, um, which is where you get into things like equivalents for financial services. I'm very positive about the potential for the UK. 
I think the country that bought you the internet, the telephone, the light bulb, and of course the roundabout is not going to be bad by Brexit. I couldn't agree more. And it puts a big smile on my face hearing you talk about the UK's future like that. We've always punched above our weight. We're the fifth or sixth, I should probably know. Fifth, sixth now, what's fifth, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was fifth, largest economy on the planet, punching above our weight, just a small island at the top of Europe. And we've had people like Ada Lovelace to, to Tim Berners-Lee, uh, you know, as part of the fabric of, of our nation. But we the reasons, had, just to interrupt you for yeah. a second. So I wrote a report for Boris when he was mayor of London, which was called London Winning in the Decade Ahead. And it was 10 years ago that I wrote it. What we did was we went back and looked at why London had been so successful as a global financial centre over so many decades. And we identified about 40 factors. Now, the good news is that very few of those are actually affected by Brexit. I mean, they are things like the fact that we have a world-revered legal system that is seen to be fair and free of corruption. It's understandable and it's predictable. We have a tax regime which is broadly internationally competitive. We could argue about taxes on banks, but uh, that's not the focus of our discussion, that is broadly uh, competitive for in terms of corporation tax for non-banks, and again, is applied in a reasonable and fair way, broadly speaking. We obviously have the English language, we have our time zone, we have above our weight in the best universities in the world, we have fabulous university research. You know, so I could go on, but the point is that there are, let's say, 30 or 35 of the 40 factors that are not affected by Brexit. And we'll still be just as good after after Brexit. And what we need to do is make sure that we invest in, in maintaining those factors and making sure that they are trending upwards, not downwards. Absolutely right. And that was part of my next question, which was, what do you think we need to do more of to continue to be successful? Is it you know, deeper access to talent because of the outcomes of Brexit? Is it we need to attract more capital? Is it we just need to be more ambitious and not sell out too early? What do you think? What's going to help us create the real so, so many of those things that you mentioned, I think, are right. So I do think the ability to attract the best talent in the world, in mean, London and the UK generally, is a global talent pool. Look at the asset management industry, for example, yeah. uh, that is outsized and based here. Um, we are a must-go-to roadshow destination. I mean, you wouldn't seriously think about doing an IPO of any company in the world without a visit to London's asset managers. So I think we have a very deep professional services market. So the best accountants, lawyers, tax advisors, the property industry, surveyors in the world, construction companies. I think there are so many opportunities. Um, What what we need the government to do, obviously, is to create the right legal background, the right investment support, the right competitive tax regime, and frankly, leave business to get on with doing what it does best. Couldn't agree more. We're coming to the end. I want to ask a couple of even further right field questions. You support a lot of young entrepreneurs. If you were to give one piece of advice to a budding entrepreneur who's about to set up their new venture, what would that be? Well, to turn it the other way around, when I look at the businesses that come to me and I see many good ones, the the overriding question for me is, does this business idea have the ability to be a world changer? In other words, can it be worth a billion or more? I see many ideas that could be worth 10 or 20 million. The problem with that is it may take you many years. And if you can only work on, as I can, five or six, you obviously want to pick ones that have the potential to be the next Facebook or Twitter or whatever example you want to give. So I would say to the entrepreneurs, and I do often say to young entrepreneurs, you've got a very good idea, but I would not waste the next three years of your life from 20 to 23 trying to prosecute it because it's not big enough for you. Go and find a bigger one, which is a really difficult message to give people sometimes because they could create a perfectly good business and sell it for 10 million pounds but if they've got the capability to do more then i encourage them to go big and that might mean a different idea it's a great point that you're making because it comes down to people and you're always backing people not necessarily ideas so it's the, it's yeah i mean the danger with doing what i do is you either fall in love with the entrepreneur or you fall in love with the idea 
you fall in love with the idea and the entrepreneur isn't capable of executing it or you fall in love with the entrepreneur and the business idea isn't a very good one. So obviously the you know Nirvana is, is finding a combination of the two but that in a way is where hopefully your experience comes in because you can maybe marry a first class entrepreneur with a better idea or improve the idea they've got and so improve the chances of success. Thank you. And then a final one, you know, we talk about these bloody devices mm. that take up so much of our day. How do you get the most out of your day? How do you make sure that you're as productive as you can be? Because I know that a day in the life of Bob is, is going to be pretty full on, I'm sure. Well, I've had a PA that's been with me for 20 years this summer, who is probably the best PA in the world. So that's rule number one. Have a fantastic PA and work closely with them. I think just being super well organized yourself, to be honest. I mean, I, I think I am quite a good multitasker. So, you know, I don't do any one thing. I do seven or eight things and trying to keep seven balls in the air at once and focus on all of them is sometimes tough. But I think you can develop a skill to do that. I struggle to watch TV and text at the same time. So I don't watch TV. I, no, me neither, to be fair. <laughs> the news is about it. Yeah, quite. Bob, thank you. Uh, I've learned an awful lot here and I'm sure that our, our listeners have to really appreciate your time and most importantly, best of luck on Wednesday with your event. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a great experience. Find out more about how Dun & Bradstreet can help your business be better. Contact us at marketinguk at dnb.com and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts.